At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, uh, my wife, Georgette, and I, we have two sons, Micah and Brayden. And while they are grown teenagers now, I want to go back to when they were four and three years old. When they were four and three, they would imitate us and reflect us a lot. And we noticed that very, very keenly. They would even feed and discipline their Buzz Lightyear and Woody figures just the way we did them. (laughs) They would take care of good old Buzz and Woody the way we took care of them. Sometimes they wore a Band-Aid a time or two. Even a monstrous gauze pad would be on their body. But they would even talk to Buzz and Woody the way we talked to them. I'm going to save that one for myself. I'm not going to share any of those with you. But it truly was amazing. And I'm sure we've seen this in children, maybe even your own children if you have them. We imitate, right? We reflect. We reflect what or who we are around. Sometimes that's consciously. Sometimes that's unconsciously. And this is all part of an ancient pattern that is rooted in the beginning of our history. In Genesis chapter 1, God created human beings to be imaging beings who would reflect his glory in the world. And so God's glory is both the blueprint, if you will, and also the purpose for human life. People spend their whole lives looking for meaning and purpose, and it's God's glory. If I could say it another way, God's glory is both our design and our duty. Human beings were made to reflect or were made to image God's glory throughout all the creation. It's absolutely impossible to be neutral on this. But see, sin has corrupted and distorted the image of God in us. And so now we do not reflect God's glory as we should. Instead, sin causes us to decide for ourselves, quite frankly, what or who we're going to reflect. And therefore, what we give ultimate allegiance to. See, for the believer, the one who by faith trusts in Christ's work on the cross, God has made alive together with him. He or she is made new, and now that image is being restored. It's being renewed in the image of its creator. But see, just like the people of Israel, if we as God's people do not remain committed to him, we will not reflect him, but something else in creation. 
That something else is what the Bible calls an idol. And I've shared this with you before, but Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors. And in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says this. An idol is anything more fundamental to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity than God. And in the scriptures, idolatry, not surprisingly, was the most common problem for God's people. They would constantly chase after the gods of the people and the cultures that surrounded them. And they became as spiritually void and as lifeless as the idols they worshipped. In his book, We Become What We Worship, theologian G.K. Beale says it this way. What people worship, they resemble, either for their destruction or their restoration. As citizens in God's kingdom today, you and I are confronted with all kinds of pressures from the culture around us, from a culture that tells us constantly what we should resemble, right? What we should reflect. Throw in the fact that our culture is quite hostile to faith in Christ, (laughs) quite hostile to really anything Christian, and that's a prime environment for us to compromise our faith, sometimes consciously. Sometimes unconsciously. And so you and I are confronted with a a question, quite honestly, all the time. What does courageous faith look like in a hostile culture? Well, that's the question we seek to answer today in the third week of our series, Daniel, Clash of Cultures. We've been following the lives of Daniel and his three friends as they navigate a culture that was hostile to them. They are exiles. They are a captured people living under a hostile rule. And from their lives, we can draw encouragement to remain faithful despite the many pressures that we face today. And so grab your Bible and join me in Daniel chapter 3. I'm sure many of you know this story, but I want to encourage you to stick with me and hang with me. I might jump around a bit just because of the repetition and some of the length of the passage here, but hang with me. So Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and all of those people gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of all of those instruments again, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree 
that every man who hears the sound of, again, those instruments, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's stop there for now. See, last week we learned that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And Daniel was the only one in all the land who could interpret it for him. And now the king makes quite literally an enormous image out of gold that represented just the part of that bigger image that was about him. Coincidence? (laughs) I don't think so. Honestly, the image is a bit weird. Based on the measurements we're given in the text, it's about 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, made of pure gold, like a giant gold totem pole, if you will. We really don't know much else about it, nothing about carvings, facial impressions, I mean, none of that. But what we do know is that the king set it up in a plane for everyone to see. And in fact, that phrase, set it up, or set up, is repeated 10 times in our text, seven in these first 12 verses. See, the king wanted total allegiance. He didn't want it to be any kind of clouded understanding. He wanted complete allegiance, and he wanted to make it plain for everyone to see. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Look at the repetition there. Verse 2 lists every single person that the king summoned to come and worship at the image he made. And then verse 3 repeats that the same people all came and stood before the image. So you and I are meant to see that all worshipped the image at the king's command. All except our friends. Their refusal shows us that we must also reject cultural idolatry. Reject cultural idolatry. There's probably no doubt in your mind, and if there was, there shouldn't be any more, though. King Nebuchadnezzar was an egomaniac. That much we can be sure of. But he really stands as a symbol of what a culture that is hostile to God is all about. Power. Right? A culture that's hostile to God will always leverage power over service. It's always interested in, in retaining its influence more than serving its people. It will use threats of exclusion or violence. It will intimidate or persuade or perhaps even invite you in. It's good for you. This will help you in life. Conform to this. It's better for you. The pressure will come from all angles and in different ways because the culture wants you to conform to its values. It wants you to adopt its values in your life. See, in our culture today, we don't worship a 90-foot gold totem pole that someone has set up in a big field in White Lake for all of us to come. No one's blowing a horn for us to come before a great big image like that. But most of us, or for most of us, that is, idolatry is much more subtle. See, sin, sin hasn't changed our purpose in life. Our purpose is still to worship. What sin has done is it's distorted who or what we worship. And if we don't remain loyal to God, we will turn to worship other things in our culture. It's a fact. 
So in order to reject the idols of our culture, we need to identify them. You can't reject something if you don't know what you're rejecting. It's pretty simple. See, the idols of money and sex or power, those are the easy ones. No less damaging just because they're easy to pick out, but those are the easy ones to see. But how about entertainment? How about technology? Maybe even recreation. How about the idol of a blue donkey and all it stands for, or a red elephant and all it stands for? Yeah, I went there. At least I didn't say football, not on today. (laughs) But see, for us, idolatry is rarely external. Rather, it's internal. It's about what's going on in our hearts. I think perhaps all of the idols that we may be able to list here today together, all of them find their root in the most common idol of all, and that is human autonomy. Right? That we have a right to do what we want, when we want, with whomever we want. Happiness is usually our guide. I have a right to this because it makes me happy. I want this because it makes me happy. I wonder if it's ever struck you that the Ten Commandments are really bookended with commandments centered on idolatry. Right? We know the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. But number ten, do not covet. See, coveting is idolatry because it's, it's putting ourself in God's place on the throne. It's pushing him aside and saying, I look out over everything I see and I don't have that, I deserve this. I should have that over there. I have a right to this over here. It's perhaps the best way we can identify our idols is to ask ourselves, what, if taken away right now, would give me the most discomfort, the most disappointment in life? Because when you reject an idol, pushback is going to follow. Pushback will come. And that's exactly what our three friends experience. Let's go back to the text and pick it up at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's stop there again. Our three friends blatantly refuse to worship the king's image, and he blows a gasket. 
If you had doubts about Nebuchadnezzar's pride before, I think his response here is going to seal the deal for you. His question at the end of his response is pretty much dripping with arrogance. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? See, his threat for nonconformity was death. That's the kind of aggressive attitude that the culture has about its own idols. The idols that it sets up, it thinks you should value what it values. You must value what it values. But the response from our three friends shows us that we must also refuse to compromise. We must refuse to compromise. I think their response is pretty inspiring, isn't it? As I was studying this text, it kind of prompted a question in my heart. I wonder if it does you right now. If I was placed in this same spot, what, would I say the same thing? But as we read this, what might surprise you is that there's considerable debate among scholars around their answer. And in the book of Daniel, there's actually two languages at play, two languages to con- contend with. There's Hebrew and there's also Aramaic. I'm not going to get into all the nuances and details, but the debate centers on what our three friends believed about God's ability to save and what they were saying about it. See, in writing these events, Daniel's not making a declaration about God's ability to save. God is not limited in power. He's not limited in his desire to save people. The key is whether our three friends believed God was able. That's the point here. See, they may have doubted what God was going to do. You and I have doubts about what God is up to, what God is going to do in this situation or that situation in our own faith journey. And we rarely grow in our faith by denying those doubts. So what we need to know is our doubts are not fatal on God. They don't project anything on Him. Matter of fact, they show us where our faith is in that moment. And oftentimes they're an invitation to deeper faith. Rachel Scott was deeply loyal to God. As a teenager, she shared her faith with other students, excuse me, with love and kindness. But see, not everyone received her. In fact, two other students hated her for it. Their names are Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. And on April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold entered Columbine High School and showed just how far their hate went. They murdered 13 people. Rachel Scott was one of the first ones they came upon, and they shot her twice. But she was still alive, and so they approached her, and as they did, they mocked her, and they asked her if she still believed God, to which she replied, you know I do. Those were the last words she spoke. See, Rachel's response in that moment, countless people's responses in moments like that remind us of the high call of the church to be a people who refuse to compromise our faith for any reason, any reason. See, the question Rachel had to answer is the same one we must answer. Will we be faithful to God despite the consequences? 
See, sometimes the consequences might be losing your life. But usually for us, they're far less. Maybe it's losing a job or perhaps a reputation amongst a couple people or many. Maybe it's taking a cut in pay, the kind of cut that you don't see how it could work in life. Maybe it's a loss of one relationship or many. See, whatever the consequences are, the question remains the same. Will we be faithful to God despite the consequences? See, you and I are not immune to the pressures to worship what our culture worships. We must decide beforehand where our loyalty is going to be placed. Because if we don't, we will follow what the culture follows. We saw Daniel resolve not to eat the king's food. Our friends resolved before this moment came where their loyalty was placed. Let's jump back into the story and finish, starting in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the, bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and all the peoples again gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of the men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, our three friends, they rejected the idol of their culture. They boldly refused to compromise, and here we see they trust in God's deliverance. So they refuse, even after the king threatens them, they refuse, and his anger goes yet to the next level. 
He orders soldiers to bind them and throw them into the superheated furnace. But I hope you saw that God's sovereign protection is already on display. Our friends fall into the furnace because the soldiers that take them there, they're killed instantly because it's so hot. But they aren't harmed. And they fall in and still aren't harmed. It all happens so quickly. The king gets up because he's astonished at what he sees. He looks into the furnace and he sees another person whose appearance is completely different than our three friends. Over the, over the years, many have said this fourth person is a Christophany. It's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus. It could be Jesus. Or it could be an angel like Nebuchadnezzar thought. See, what you and I are meant to see is that God is the one who delivered them. Just like God is the one who delivers you and me in our trials. That is what we are meant to see. And God doesn't always spare us from the fires of life. Instead, he comes and stands in those flames with us. What an amazing God we have. And this is a promise that literally is all over Scripture. Over and over again, we see this declared about God is that he comes and stands in our trials with us. Perhaps the most famous example is Psalm 23. Verse 4 stands out. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. See, God's sovereign protection, it's so compelling in this passage that the king completely, completely changes course. He actually blesses God. He then makes a decree in God's favor and then promotes our three friends. And for us, the takeaway is not just that our three friends came out alive, although that's plenty reason to praise God. It's plenty reason to have thanksgiving in our hearts for God. But the takeaway is that God was with them in the fire. See, that's one of the hardest tests of our lives, remaining faithful to God. See, doing the right thing is hard, especially when we don't see the point it's going to make. Sometimes life has you in a desert and it's just a barrage of stress, a barrage of things to compromise on and you just don't see what doing the right thing is going to yield. It seems pointless to you. You don't see any signs of God. These are the times when the pressure to compromise is at its highest and faithfulness matters most. Daniel 3 reminds us that true faithfulness means we don't give our allegiance to anything else, not even to save our own skin. Courageous faith rejects idolatrous worship. Through the faithfulness of our three friends, it's meant to point us to the perfect faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus, who had a willingness to go through the fire of the cross and to do that absolutely alone. But doing that, it made it possible for us to have his permanent presence through the Spirit. Oh, what a promise that is. See, and it's through the Spirit that God enables us to live with a courageous faith and allegiance to him alone. 
All the while, you and I are comforted by the greatest reality of all. God's presence in life, in death, and beyond. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.